service as well. Well, good morning, church, and welcome to week six of a series that we're calling Surrender. Now, this series is really simply born out of a word that God gave us late in 2022 that we were praying and we were seeking God and we were asking him, what do you have for us as a church in 2023? What are you calling us to do as a church and as people in the church? What do you have for us? And, and God spoke to our leadership and he said, I'm calling this church to surrender which quite simply means to lay our lives down, to lay down our desires, our resources, our finances, to lay down our plans and hopes and ambitions, to lay down our lives, giving of our time, to give of all that God has given us and to give it back to him and say, God, whatever you want, I will surrender it to you. I will give it to you. And it's really simply the idea the happiness and blessing, we often look for it out in society and, and in, in, in work and in jobs, and we try to find fulfillment in the world. But those things that we seek are not found out there, but they're found here in the presence of God. That as we seek God, as we surrender ourselves to him, the blessing of God, the storehouses of heaven will be hope opened so that God will pour out and do what only he can do in our lives. See, often in the church, we love to look at salvation because salvation is a free gift. And we love things that are free. But what we don't like is when God asks us something that will cost us something. We don't like to give things back to God when it costs us things, but God is calling us, are you going to surrender? Will you trust me? You know, so often I hear people make this statement, and no judgment if you've made it, I've made it before, but, but it's the statement of, if only God would just fill in the blank. If only God would just heal me, if only God would just give me a million dollars, if only God would just give me a better job, if only God would deliver me, if only God would help me be free of this addiction, if only God would just fix me, that's the mentality, then my life would be so much better. If only God would fix me, then I would surrender to him. But the reality is, I, I, I heard this in, in a course we do here at the church. It's called Soul Care. And this pastor named Rob Reimer, he, he put it this way. He said, God is not, in, or we always want God to fix us. God is far less interested in fixing us than we are. Our goal is comfort. His goal is intimacy. He doesn't want to fix us. He wants a relationship with us. Because the reality is, God knows for many people in this room, if he were to fix the thing that you want him to fix, if he were to give you the million dollars you're asking for, you're like, God, if you'll give me a million dollars, I'll give back to you. He's like, well, you're not doing it already. If he were to give you what you're asking and fix your problems, you would probably serve him for a couple days, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple months. But then trouble would come again and you would be in the exact same place. And God knows that often the solution to fixing us, to solving our problems, is not an immediate fix. It's relationship with him. 
That as we spend time with Jesus, as we spend time in his presence, as we have a relationship with God, he will work in our hearts and transform us because God is a good, good father who loves and protects his children. You know, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about the idea of being a child of God. And the reason we've been talking about that so much is because it really simply is a key to intimacy. See, Romans chapter 8 puts it this way. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Ephesians 1 tells us that when you receive Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are a child of God. He says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, I love that phrase, Abba, Father. The word Abba is specifically an Aramaic term from Jesus' day that is, was used by a child who is fully dependent on their father. It's Abba, Father, Father, help me. Father, protect me. Father, provide for me. Father, I trust you. And what's interesting with this passage, I'm not going to dig super deep into it, but that wording, Abba, Father, is used three times in Scripture. Once, Mark 14, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, Abba, Father. Once, Galatians 3, the Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And once is here in Romans 8, we get to cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus cried, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit cries, Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father. And then it goes on. This is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, in our modern culture, we don't totally understand the meaning of heirship or what it means to be an heir of something. Because we don't really have monarchies and royal families and whatnot, but basically, in a royal family, an heir was the person who was next in line to assume what the, the head honcho of the family had upon their death. So the heir, so we, if we think of the British monarchy, Queen Elizabeth dies, her heir, whoever it is, I don't remember, um, he ascended to the throne, and everything that the queen had became his. Now, we know God is not going to die. That's just, that's just a fact. God is not going to die. But the meaning of heirship is that we have a legal right to the riches and power and everything that God has. We have access to all these things. And Paul, in this passage, he quite simply, he's telling us, you are a child of God. And as a child of God, you have access to the Father. You can cry, Abba, Father, God, help me. God, protect me. God, provide for me. And he will hear you. 
You are loved by the Father. Later on in this passage, we won't read it now, but, but Paul goes on and he's like, what could separate us from the love of God? Not height, not depth, not angels, not demons, not anything in all of creation. You are loved by the Father. But the third thing he says is as a child of God, you are an heir. An heir to all that God has for you. You know, we've been talking about this idea of being a child of God for, for four weeks now. This is the fifth week, I think. And the reason we've been emphasizing this, so we weren't going to go super in-depth with it, but, but God told us to go back to it. And the reason we've been going back to it is because the reality is you won't surrender to someone that you don't trust. You won't surrender your life to someone who doesn't have your best interest at heart. So if you do not trust God to be a good, good father, you're going to hold back. You're going to hold back your time, your resources, what God tells you to do. You're going to do your own thing until you come to a place of trust. We only surrender to those that we trust. And the reality is God... He's our father. We are children of God. And God, he's a good, good father. He wants only what's best for you. And so over the last couple weeks, we have talked about various things, various aspects of this. Talked about how we are a child of God. It was week two of the series. How we can spend time with God and hear his voice in week three. We talked about how God wants to teach us and discipline us to show us a better way to live, to call us to a higher standard. But this morning, I want to dig into an area of sonship or daughtership, of being a child to God that I haven't really heard a lot of messages on. And I want to talk about the access we have as children of God to the power, inheritance, and authority of God. And we're calling this message the power of a child. Sounds like an oxymoron, because children aren't that powerful. But the power we have as children of God. In Ephesians 1, we find this fascinating passage of Scripture. And the start of the chapter, it really, Paul is digging into how God sees us, what God thinks of us. And in the start of of the passage, Paul, he tells us all kinds of things like how we are blessed by God with every spiritual blessing, how we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. How we have been adopted by God to be his child through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He tells us how we have an inheritance and a destiny. He tells us how how God has revealed his plans and purposes to us. And how as children of God, God has given us his Holy Spirit as a seal or a sign that everything else God has promised us he will And you know this passage, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's Ephesians 1. 
This passage is great if you ever are feeling down and you're like, oh, I don't know if God loved me. Read this passage. It is a great reminder. Black and white text, just simple, straightforward. This is how God sees you. This is how God sees his children. But you know, I, I memorized this passage way back when I was in high school. And, and I memorized the first part of the passage, but I got to the second part of the chapter and I was like, ah, no, that's not as fun. So I didn't really dig into it. And, and it was only recently that I started to read the second part of this chapter in depth and, and see the beauty of what Paul is saying. Because Paul, he's just described everything that God has done for us, for free, by the way. No strings attached, just believe, and you get all of that that he's promised. And then afterwards, Paul goes into this, Ephesians 1, verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. What's Paul saying? He's saying to the church in Ephesus, I pray for you. Because as a leader in the church, we are praying for the people in the church, that God would impact your lives, that God would do something special in your life, that God would reveal himself to you. And he says, what is his prayer? He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? Now we'll pause there because what Paul is saying in this passage, he's just gone through everything God's done for us, all these good things God's done for us, and then he comes to this point and he says, hey, church in Ephesus, Ephesian Christians, I pray for you. What, what am I praying for? That you would know God. And as you come to know God more and more, he would give you wisdom and revelation and understanding. Specifically, so that you would be able to comprehend what is accessible to you as a child of God. What is the hope that you have access to? And what hope is he talking about? Well, from the context hope for salvation in the future, and hope for deliverance from evil in the present. As a child of God, you have access to hope, he says. And not only hope, but also an inheritance. What inheritance? Again, from the context, eternity, an inheritance of eternity in heaven, salvation, and blessing in the present. I hope that you'll see the, the hope, the inheritance. And thirdly, he says, the power of God at work that you have access to through faith in Christ. What power? Well, specifically, we'll read it in a second, he says the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power. As a child of God, Paul is saying, I pray that you will come to know God, that as you spend time with God, in relationship with God, he will show you his hope, his inheritance, and his power that he has made available to you. And then just in case the church doesn't fully understand, like what exactly is he talking about, he goes on. He says, verse, verse 20, he says, God put this power to work in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him, far, or seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for... Now, this word is interesting. So we've just got a description God raised Jesus from the dead. He is, Jesus is now at the right hand of the throne of God. He has all power, all authority, all dominion. His name is greater than every other name. Who is it for? Paul says, for the church. Now, I want to be clear. The church is not a building. The church is the people. For the church. Church being the people who believe in Jesus, for me and you. For the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul is just saying, hey, Ephesian believers, my prayer is that you would spend time getting to know Jesus. And as you develop your relationship with God, he will speak to you, he will guide you, and he will bless you. He will give you hope, an inheritance, and his power to accomplish his will on the earth. Hope, inheritance, and power. And, 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 and to the church that this is written, these words, like these words are great for us. But to the church that this was written, these words would be especially impactful. Because you see, Ephesus, the, church, the, the city where the Ephesian believers were, to whom this letter was written, the city of Ephesus was a city that was entirely focused on hope, inheritance, and power. See, Ephesus, um, they... they believed it was an ancient metropolis. I believe it had like 100,000 people at the height of its, its city. I know nowhere near Edmonton, but large for that day and age. Um, but it was this massive, massive city. And in that city, they worshipped almost exclusively an ancient false Greek deity named Artemis. And Artemis was considered to be the goddess of the fertility and the hunt. And, and the Ephesian church, or the Ephesian people believed that Artemis had been born in Ephesus, and so they worshipped her and everything. And in fact, they built a temple for her, if you throw up that picture, Temple of Artemis, which was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It was a massive, massive temple, all to worship Artemis. And they believed that all that they had came from Artemis. That the wealth of the city, the fame of the city, the political power of the city, that it all came from Artemis. And, and they, they had proof for this because Ephesus was a massive, massive metropolis with lots and lots of money. They had massive houses for, for the rich people to dwell in. I mean, there was still the poor and working class, but there was a lot of rich people. They had a massive port. They had a theater that could seat 20,000 people. Like, that's insane for an ancient civilization or ancient city to have a, a theater that could seat that many. 
It had massive marketplace, a lot of trade, lots and lots of money came through that city. And the Ephesian people believed, well, it's all from Artemis. And so they put their hope in Artemis. She was the goddess of fertility and the hunt. So, so they hoped that Artemis would bless them. They hoped that Artemis would give them children. They hoped that they would be safe through pregnancy and, and childbirth because of Artemis. They put their hope in Artemis. And because they were a rich city, they knew all about inheritance. Because rich people give their inheritance down to their children. And, and so the children, they would receive an inheritance from their rich parents when their parents died. And they were like, oh, well, this inheritance, it came from our parents, but it came because of the blessing of Artemis. Because she blessed us, we get this inheritance. And, and those who didn't have money, well, they hoped that Artemis would just give them money, would give them an inheritance. So their hope was in Artemis, and their inheritance was in Artemis. And, and what's crazy as well is that the Ephesian people, they were fascinated by spiritual power. Not like political power, like I want to be in control of the government and be famous and whatnot. No, well, I'm sure they were interested in that, but that's not what Paul's referring to. They're specifically talking about spiritual power. And in Ephesus, as with much of the ancient Near East, they were very, very interested in being able to control the spiritual realm. They practiced sorcery, magic, witchcraft, all these kinds of things to try and control spirits. And they believed that if you knew the name of a spirit, you could compel it to do your will. And so, Acts 19, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm, I'll just tell you what kind of happens. Acts 19, Paul comes to Ephesus, and he starts to preach. And people are saved, people are healed, people are delivered, Things, just amazing things happen. It's in Ephesus that Paul, he's working as a tent maker, and he would wipe his brow with, with a piece of cloth because he's all sweaty, and somebody would grab that cloth and lay it on a sick person, and the person would be healed. But Acts 19 records the story of, like, the, the people in Ephesus are like, wow, this guy is powerful. Jesus is powerful. But not all of them believed in Jesus. And so Acts 19 tells us the story of, of some, some children, some kids, probably teenagers, who are not believers. They don't believe in Jesus. But they're actually, it says that they're the sons of the high priest, Sceva. And so they go, and they're like, well, Jesus is powerful, and we want his to use, so we want to use his name to do whatever we want. We want to force Jesus to do stuff for us because we know his name. And so they go, and they find a man who is possessed by a demon, and they're like, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, leave. Now, I'm, there's nothing to be afraid of when it comes to deliverance. We do deliverance all the time here at the church. There's power in the name of Jesus. Nothing can overcome the name of Jesus. But if you do deliverance outside of the protection of the Holy Spirit... That is dangerous. And so they come in. They don't believe in Jesus. They're just like, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. And the demon looks at them, and he's like, I know of Jesus, and I know of Paul. Who are you? And he attacks them. And word of this spreads throughout the city. 
and everyone is amazed. And then it says this in, in, in Acts 19. It says verse 19, or verse 18. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. Who gathered the books and burned them? Christians out of their personal library. And the scholars estimate that 50,000 silver coins, yeah, that's about 6 million US dollars, just approximately. Just, that just gives you a scope of the wealth in Ephesus. And so the Ephesian people, their hope was in Artemis, their inheritance they believed was from Artemis, and they sought spiritual power over demonic forces in the world. And it's to this context that Paul writes. He's like, I pray that as you come to know Jesus, you might see the extravagant hope that he has for you. The glorious inheritance that he wants to give you. And his power that you have access to. And in essence, in that moment, Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, okay, Ephesians, I get it. You think your hope comes from Artemis? You think your inheritance comes from Artemis? You think that you, you want power over spiritual things? And you're looking for it all out there on your own. But if you believe in Jesus, just come to him. You have free access. It's not like you have to pay for it. It's not like you have to earn it. You have free access to the hope, the inheritance, and the power of God. He says, I pray that you would perceive it. You see, some, some gifts that God gives us are automatic. You receive them at, at, at faith, at salvation. When you believe in Jesus, it says that we are saved. There's no contingency there. Believe and you're saved. Your eternity is now secure. But there are some things that God wants to bless us with that require our obedience. And in order to receive the fullness of all that God has for us, we have to surrender and we have to perceive what he has for us and to seek after it. And the only way to receive what God wants to give us is to spend time with him. See, Ephesians 1, if we go back to that passage for a moment, Paul says, we find it, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. That's very specific. As you come to know him, you will start to perceive the hope, inheritance, and power God has available to you. And you will be able to receive it. You know, a couple weeks ago, 
we wrapped up our Spirit-Filled Life series, and the last message in that series was, it was one we called Untapped Power, and it was all based on a verse out of John 14 where, where Jesus says that those who believe will do the works that I have done, and in fact, they will do greater works than these. The works he's referring to being preaching the gospel, showing people the love of God, uh, healing the sick, raising the dead, that kind of thing. Like, there's a broad scope to the works he's talking about, and And through that message, the hope, the goal really was to start to reveal to us what God has made available to us. The power that we have access to through the Holy Spirit. But there's one thing that we need to learn. Well, there's many things we need to learn. But one thing in particular we need to learn when it comes to the power of God. And this is going to blow your mind. God's power is God's power. It's not your power. He doesn't give you the gift of healing and suddenly you can go to a hospital and heal everyone. No, no, no. It is God's power to accomplish his will on the earth. But it's God's power. We can receive, we can access it, we can do amazing things. But if you have the gift of prophecy, It doesn't mean you can go around and give prophetic words to each and every person you see. You can only do it if God speaks to you. The gift of healing, you can't go around healing every person that you see who's sick unless God speaks to you. Gift of tongues, well, you can speak in tongues whenever you want, but but the gifts of the Spirit are linked to God's power. Hope, inheritance, power, Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, all those things, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, those all come from God, but are received as we spend time with God. See, in John 5, we, we find this story, and the story basically goes, Jesus, he's coming into Jerusalem for a festival, and, and as he comes into Jerusalem, he makes a pit stop at a place called the Pool of Bethsaida. And it's basically just this pool that a bunch of sick people hang around, and the belief was that once in a while an angel would come and stir the water, and the first person in the pool would be healed. And so it was essentially a hospital without the doctors, and the people are just hanging out there hoping to get into the pool when the water is stirred. And Jesus, he comes into this place with dozens, maybe hundreds of sick people. He sees one person, and he goes to them, he heals him, and then he leaves. Now, it's easy for us to ask, okay, Jesus, why did you heal one out of the many? Why only one? But the religious people of the day, they had a different question. Jesus how dare you heal the one on a Saturday? Because you can't do any good on a Saturday, according to them. And in response, Jesus, he makes this this profound statement. He says, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And in this one verse, Jesus makes two key revelations. One, he says, yeah, I'm the son of God. 
Jesus is saying that he is the son of God. He is divine. He is God. But secondly, what Jesus reveals is that he only operated in the power of God in accordance with God's will. Jesus only healed those God told him to heal. He only delivered those God told him to deliver. He only spoke the words God told him to say. I believe it's in John 10 or 11. Jesus says that, that he only speaks what the Father tells him to say. Jesus only did things in accordance with the Father's will. And so he goes into this place and he heals one person. Why? Because the Father only told him to heal one person. Why do we have to rely on the will of God in accessing the power and hope and inheritance of God? Well, quite simply, because God knows more than you do. Very simple. God knows more than you do. He is God. You are you. You have your perspective of what is right and true and and is happening in the world. And God is up in heaven, and he's like, yeah, no, I know the beginning and I know the end, and what you think, might, you, you might think that that's best, but I know what actually is best. So the power and hope and inheritance we have access to, it is God's power and hope and inheritance. It is God's power and hope and inheritance that he freely gives to us. Paul says, as you come to know him, perceive, see what God has available to you, but as you come to know him, then you will receive. John chapter 15, Jesus says, he's telling this allegory and talking about how essentially he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And it's this allegory of, of like a grapevine. And how a branch of a grapevine can't bear fruit on its own unless it's attached to the vine. And so the point being that we must be attached to Jesus in order to bear good fruit. That as we remain with Jesus, he will provide for us what we need. And he says this in, in, in verse 5. He says, I am the vine... You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done. Now, we love the second part of that phrase. Ask for whatever you wish and it will be done. Yes, Jesus, I want a million dollars. What's the contingent? Abide in him. And the word abide in the Greek is the Greek word meno, which literally means to not depart, to not leave, to continue to be present. And it's this idea that as we spend time with Jesus, as we remain with Jesus, he will speak to us. 
He will guide us. He will tell us what is true, what isn't, what is right, and what isn't. He will lead us and reveal his heart to us. That as we spend time with Jesus, things will change inside of us. Because naturally, you become like the people you hang around. So as we spend more time with Jesus, we become more like Jesus. And slowly but surely, he begins to work in our hearts to show us how to love others, to show us how to be gracious to others, to show us a better way to live. As Jesus works in our hearts, we become more like him. And over time, it's not instantaneous, over time, it's a process. God wants relationship. He doesn't want to fix you. He wants a relationship with you. And through relationship, he wants to bring you to wholeness. And over time, as you spend time with Jesus, your selfish will, your desire for comfort and life and, and everything you think you need, over time, as you spend time with Jesus, he will start to conform your will to his will. That as you abide in Jesus and spend time with Jesus, your will will become his will. You will lay yourself down. You will surrender yourself to him. To him. Say, God, your will be done, not mine. And it's in that place. As we begin to learn the will of God and hear God's voice more and more and more, it's in that place we have access to the hope, inheritance, and power of God. See, it's God's hope, God's inheritance, God's power. It's not ours. It's God's authority. It's not ours. We operate in borrowed authority, but it doesn't belong to us. We have access to the hope of God. We can trust him. We have access to the inheritance of God. We are blessed by him. We have access to the power of God. We can change the world for him, but it's his hope, his power, and his inheritance in accordance with his will. But the question is, are you willing to surrender yourself to him? Are you willing to surrender and spend time in the presence of God? Not once a week at church, but daily in your own life. Are you willing to receive from God and listen to his voice? Are you willing to let him transform you from the inside out, to give him access to the deepest parts of your soul, to heal the wounds that are in your soul, to bring you to wholeness? Are you willing to surrender everything to him? Not because he wants you to be left with nothing, but because he wants to bless you. See, often we think of surrender in terms of warfare. If I surrender, it's like giving up to an enemy army who's going to take you and shackle you and throw you in prison and remove all your rights. That's not how God is calling us to surrender. He's calling us to surrender who he never meant us to be so that we can become who we truly are and receive all that he has for us. Will you surrender to him? Just as we close, I want to do a very simple activity with you. And the reason for this activity is because 
I believe it's important that each and every one of us have a personal relationship with God. That you don't just believe what I tell you because I say it and I say it with authority and power from the stage, but that you have a personal faith. That God speaks to you and as he speaks to you, he listens. John 10, Jesus says that his children hear his voice. So God is speaking. But in a moment, we're going to pray and then we'll go into a final song of worship and close. But before we do, if I can just get everyone right now to close your eyes. And I want to encourage you to ask God this question. God, what are you calling me to surrender to you? God, what have I been holding on to that is keeping me from receiving all that you want to give me? What are you calling me to surrender to you? Ask God that question and allow him to speak. God speaks in many ways. Sometimes it's a word that pops into our head. Sometimes it's a phrase. Sometimes people hear his audible voice. Sometimes you see a picture, whether it's in your mind or, or, or through your eyes. Sometimes you'll get a passage of scripture. But whatever God says, receive it and test it. Is it loving? Does it glorify Jesus? Is it in line with who God is and what is revealed in scripture? If so, receive it. And then once you have something, Once you have something, I want to encourage you to do a simple act. You can do this now, during worship, at home, wherever you want, whenever you want. It's up to you. But once you have heard from God what he is calling you to surrender, what are you to, I want to encourage you just to picture in your mind holding that thing in your hands. Whatever it is, holding it in your hands and standing before Jesus. And I want you just to imagine bending over, placing it at his feet, and leaving it there. And then as you do that, pray and say, Jesus, I surrender this to you. I surrender this thing to you. What are you calling me to do? help us to see you as the loving, perfect, amazing Father that you are. Let us not see you according to the way that our earthly Father treated us, but according to who you actually are. God, help us to receive, to hear, to listen, and to obey God. say whatever you want to do in our lives 
God, whatever you want to do in my life, God, I give you all that I have. All money, all possessions, all goals, all ambitions, all dreams, all visions, everything, God, I give you all that I am and all that I have and I lay it on your feet. Jesus, I surrender to you. Trusting that you do what only you can do in my life. We surrender to you, Jesus.